In the early 2000s, New York Times best-selling author Greg Cox crafted a series of novels on the eugenics wars, where advanced human Khan Noonien Singh came to power to rule with his genetically superior followers. Of course, we saw that in the classic Space Seed episode of Star Trek, and even in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, where he returned. This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore humanity. What Greg Cox did that was interesting was mixing actual and Star Trek history together. And adding to the mix are some characters from the original series to make things interesting. So on today's Trek Tuesday is Greg Cox on his Eugenics Wars novels taped in the early 2000s. I'd like to kind of review a little bit of uh, the, the first volume, the things I really liked about it. Uh, my One of my favorite parts of the book was the sequence in, in Lennon's tomb. And I'm not going to be too specific for those who haven't read it, but you should if you're going to read the second part. Um, that was really cool. And with uh, with Gary uh, and, and, uh, and also Roberta and Young Khan, talk a little bit more liberally about the first one. What, what was your favorite part of the book one? Well, the whole first third of the thing, which was the adventure in India with Chrysalis, I, in my head, was a James Bond movie. And I had, like, usually had Bond soundtracks or in, like, Flint soundtracks playing in the background as I wrote those scenes running around in the hero's diabolical underground lair in India. That was fun. I was only perversely amused at getting actually to write Reagan, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev as characters in a book. I'd never actually put my dialogue into the mouth of the real people before. It was fun. And, of course, just leaving in all the pop culture references, like Reagan and the Jelly Beans, and references to New Coke and everything like that. Nostalgia trip, going back and looking up all this stuff. With me now, writing book one, it's like now two years ago, I wrote... Yeah. I write book, writing book one, I, I, I mostly remember like, reading lots and lots of books on India, and immersing myself in India for a long time, since that's where probably two-thirds of the first book took. Thankfully, in the new book, I'm only in India maybe every fourth chapter or so. I still got the shelf full of travel guides to India up on my shelf. I just can't bring myself to throw them away yet. Okay. There's more with the eugenics wars with Greg Cox in a moment. Speaking of a James Bond, it was almost like I was reading it and I was saying, boy, this it almost reads like a Bond movie where Khan is the villain trying to take over the world and uh, there's Roberta and Gary Seven trying to trying to stop him. And I go... Boy, I really want to see more adventures with Gary Seven in there. Our way to handle it was the Khan is basically a Bond villain, and he has a vast secret empire stretching all over the country, and has a diabolical death machine. Indeed, the, the scene where he calls in basically all the senators and leaders of the world and demonstrates his evil killer death satellite, I mean, that's just pure James Bond. And one guy raises a fuss and gets killed off by the big hulking sidekick. You know, he's even got the big hulking sidekick who's got the special concealed weapon hidden in his belt. He's got his odd job, gave him an odd job. This was very much Star Trek as a James Bond novel uh, with transporters and, and, and magic cats. I, I like your attention to detail to incorporate a lot of the people that he woke up with in Spacey and use them in your books to kind of tie it together that eventually they'll, uh, you know, they'll be taking off into the stars to, uh, to be found by the Enterprise hundreds of years later. Well, as ever, this was an exercise in extrapolating off really minimal clues in Space Seed. I mean, Joachim is in Space Seed. He has about one line. He, he's the big, bruisey guy who slaps Yura around. But okay, that's it. I, I wrote him as this big, scary, hulking 
menacing bodyguard. And the rest of the characters is like, there's a whole bunch of characters, and we just hear their names. Ling McPherson! So, okay, I gotta have a Ling, I gotta have a McPherson. So, fine, I made it up. It's Suzette Ling and Liam McPherson. You know, she's a botanist, she's a chemist. The only thing I had to remember near the end of the book was suddenly realizing that all the characters whose names I'd stolen from Space Seed had to live. I actually, at one point, realized, oh my god, I've got McPherson scheduled to die when something terrible happens. I mean, he can't die because he's in the Botany Bay. I actually had to go to the point of making sure that when one of Khan's evil headquarters is destroyed and many of his people are destroyed, that Suzette Ling and Liam McPherson actually were not among the casualties because we need to see them in space seed. And in theory, I will use these characters again in... There is going to be a third book now, which isn't really a eugenics board, but there's a third con book. We can discuss that at some point. But we're going to do a third book, which is basically the CD Alpha 5 years. Khan's years of exile in CD Alpha 5. Khan and Marla MacGyver's, and indeed, some of the characters from Eugenics Wars 2, who, those who survived Eugenics Wars 2, will pop up in the third book. Well, that's, that's cool. I definitely would love to see that, because there's a lot of an- unanswered questions of when uh, we, we started the Wrath of Khan and uh, what happened to, you know, his, his wife was attacked by those wonderful little worms, but... Uh, yeah, poor Marla's got an eel with her name on it. Okay, yeah, coming up. be a really cool survival tale, too. John and I are trying to figure out what to do next, and we can't extend the Eugenics Wars. Wait a minute, you've got CDLP-5, you've got planets blowing up, the planet being knocked out of its orbit, Marlon MacGyver is being killed by worms. I mean, okay, that's a book. The Eugenics Wars books basically fill in everything in Khan prior to Space Seed. The next book will fill in the gap between Space Seed and Wrath of Khan, which gives me 15 years to play around with. Okay. Cool. Time for Judson Scott to get born, too. Okay, we got to bring Judson Scott along. There's a story, too. We, we really didn't get into it. One of the things I love about uh, both books is, you, you, before I even read it, I'll go to the back and just look at the acknowledgments for the research, tying in real events to the book. And it was, it's always great because you really, you, you can tell the nature of the research, but it's a lot, there's a lot of really cool facts in there. And that's what I, one of the things I enjoy about it, besides the plotting and all that. I've used the analogies when I was writing these books, which are said in, you know, New Book of the 90s, of trying to drag in everything from Star Trek history, everything from real history and making the mesh. And just weird pop cultural stuff that I just, okay, there had to be a new Coke joke. And when I discovered at one point that in 1992, genetically engineered tomatoes went on sale in England. This is true. I, okay, I gotta mention the genetically engineered tomatoes going on sale in England, okay, in like 1992. Though invariably there'll be a few things that were in-jokes I wanted to get in and they just never worked. I wanted to get Tiananmen Square in there somewhere, but it didn't work. I wanted to bring in Ricardo Montalban's character from the Planet of the Apes movies, but it just, there was just never a place to work him in. I wanted to bring in Empire of the Ants, the old movie where Start Robert Lancey, who plays Gary Seven, and I wanted at some point to have Gary Seven meet some giant ants, but again, because I would not turn the plot into a total pretzel just to accommodate a cheap one-liner. Okay, but maybe next Gary Seven. I can still maybe do a Gary Seven book with giant ants at some point. Okay, yes. As Ernest Lilly and I were saying last year, we were lobbying strongly for for a series of Gary Seven books, and uh, I mean, who better to understand how to write them now after yourself? If there's a ding about the whole series, is just like, I mean, Roberta has gotten a bigger part in, in the books. Yeah. You know, at times I found myself reading and I said, I want more Gary in there. I want more Gary. <laughs> yeah, I, I do understand the restraints because in the second book, especially, he's getting older. And maybe he can't, even though he's engineered, he can't maybe do some of the things that she can. But that's my only, like, but kind of thing. Although, other than that, I think it's uh, pretty right on. And uh, I found myself listening to the dialogue 
you mentioned that meeting in the beginning. There's lines that you hear Khan saying, and you can almost hear Ricardo Montalban's. He has that dramatic pause that he does so well. He'll say a sentence, stop, and then continue on, just the way he speaks, which I think is just a natural thing, and I caught that. Just that one ding, other than that, I thought you captured a lot of them right on. That, that's valid. Also, with Gary Seven, there was a slight instinct that he's more funny if you keep him en- enigmatic, so you don't want to get into his head too much. But actually, I do remember at one point realizing, oh my God, it's been 100 pages and I haven't checked in with Gary Seven. And, and adding a Gary realizing, oh, there's a problem here. I need a Gary Seven scene and going in and writing an unplanned Gary Seven scene because, uh oh, I just have been so busy with Khan and Roberta, I actually haven't touched base with Gary for, you know, 85 pages. I better. And I went in and actually wrote a scene with Gary Seven because there was a perceived lack of Gary Sevenness somewhere in the middle of the book and wrote in a scene with him. You know, you're doing some juggling, and you've got to give each character its due and also advance the plot. That's not always an easy thing to do. And damn it, Khan's on the cover, so you never want to get too far away from Khan. If, if I had a slight ding about the first book, is that for all Khan was on the front cover, Khan doesn't really actually appear as a character well into well into book one, because he's, when he first appears, he's a nine-year-old. We don't get grown-up Khan until the very end of pretty much the first book. The second book, I have Khan grown up in full Ricardo Montalban mode. I, I did think of the effort of explaining why Khan doesn't have a beard, even though he's a Sikh. That makes no sense, you know. He's a Sikh. You know, Sikhs have beards, okay. And, and for shameless in-jokes, could not resist the scene where when Khan has got his own secret island headquarters, I had to give him the line, Welcome to Chrysalis Island, yes. I really considered giving him a midget sidekick, but thought everyone would just think I was ripping off Mini-Me. I like seeing the, uh, what I call, Trek guest stars from all different generations kind of blended in. I'm not giving anything away because Shannon O'Donnell was in the first book. It was a much bigger part of the second one, actually, yeah. yeah. Oh, but lots and lots of cameos. Uh, in some cases, just honestly a cameo. A cameo like the country singer from the Neutral Zone pops up for one scene. Yeah. Which is, I need, okay, a scene in Las Vegas, I had the guy singing a song. And then, okay, I, I like the idea that actually Jackson Roykirk built the computer system on the Botany Bay, and that it used transparent aluminum obtained by Walter Nichols in Star Trek IV. I was actually sort of proud of the fact that I actually, there's got sort of the conundrum of where in the world did Khan find a DY-100 starship in 1996? Well, You've got Jackson Roy Kirk, you've got Area 51, you've got Jeffrey Carlson and the Roswell technology, and you've got Shannon O'Donnell, and you've got the transparent aluminum. I also, just tying it all together, love the idea that, in fact, not only was Walter Nichols, who invented transparent aluminum, involved with building the cryogenic cells in Botany Bay, he also built the cryogenic cells for those three people who were found in the next-gen episode, Neutral Zone. And instantly... We have to actually give a call out here to the craftsmanship involved. Those 20th century cryogenic cells were built to last. <laughs> Not only did they keep the Botany Bay crew alive for 200 years, but they kept Ralph Offenhaus and Claire Raymond alive for 300 years. I mean, yeah. that was quality workmanship. Okay, you know. <laughs> I just got me to thinking, it's just kind of like, it's interesting, but without knowing it, the... Star Trek in the future actually initiated what happened in the past. Yes. I guess uh, that's one for the temporal police. Yes. You, you've got Quark's little crash in the 40s figured into the creation of the Botany Bay. We've got Scotty giving away the store on transparent aluminum figures into the Botany Bay. Yes. And you've got Gary Seven, who's also it's, it leaks some alien technology to Area 51 for his own arcade reasons. Okay, so... 
I, I thought it was actually, we came up with a plausible explanation as to where you could get a starship, you know, in 1996. What were some of your favorite moments in book two? You don't have to give anything away, but, you know, you had more con, and, you know, obviously I think that was a, a big plus. Although I did like in the first book, uh, the fact that he was younger, because you got to see a little bit of his mother, learn where he came from, learn where his personality developed, and I think that's important to understand him as, uh, as somebody in the Star Trek universe. I like the summit meeting of the generic, generic tyrants, and I'll mention that I know John Ordo, my, my, my editor, liked that chapter too, where in fact I meant, got to invent kind of interesting other, you know, genetically engineered supervillains. I didn't want them all just to be cl- clones of, you know, Khan, not literally, but the same stripe. So, sort of dived again into, okay, so there's a crazed, le- you know, Peruvian left-wing socialist, there's a right-wing gun nut, there's a lesbian separatist, there's a communist, there's a crazed mad scientist, there's the leader of a millennial doomsday cult, and as I say, all sort of composites of the sort of people who made the 1990s so interesting. We had a couple lines of dialogue in Space Seed that there were several rival supermen vying for power, and well, I had to invent them all, and I'd tr- I had fun inventing them all and kind of giving them all different personalities so they weren't all just Con light. And I had fun actually writing the scene where Con thought that he was going to, in fact, be able to run the show, and in fact, they end up fighting among themselves forever and ever and ever. Greg Cox tells me more about the eugenics wars. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I thought it was great to flesh them out, too, because, I mean, they only got a passing line in the original track. Con, you know, fought a wars against other genetically engineered super people, so... I invented a whole legion of doom of super people and killed them all off in interesting ways. You know, now that you've kind of gotten into his head for two books, what do you think is his appeal? He's very charismatic, though, and he's got a, a lot of positive qualities. He, in fact, he's brave, he's courageous, he's ambitious, smart. He just, fortunately, is ethically challenged a bit. My own take on him is actually basically Khan's fatal flaw is impatience. He wants to set the world right now, and he just isn't around to muck around with compromising. He he knows what needs to be done, and he does it, and he's just ruthless. He does get impatient with, with the fact that the stupidity of normal people keeps slowing him down. You can see that in Space Seed, when he has his own little rant. He loses his temper. We offered the world order! And he also gets damn frustrated later on when he's captured the Enterprise, and he's trying to convince Sirura and Scotty, and he's, you know, having to torture them all. You, know, you can tell he doesn't want to do it, honestly. You know, he does it because he's con, but this is just so unnecessary. Why are you forcing me to throw you one after another out the airlock here? Why don't you just bow to the inevitable and accept that my superior intellect should be running the show? He just gets very impatient. Which is why it is so galling that he can't even get his own brother and sister Superman to fall in line with them. Even though the course of the first book, of the second book, Khan gets more ruthless and more frustrated as the book goes on, as he's, the 90s drag on and he isn't ruling the world, and the world just is going on, and he's getting resistance on every front. Even the damn uncooperative people in India are, are rebelling against his rule, people are complaining because he's shutting down newspapers, and Khan has actually no patience for bureaucracy, doing things the slow way, he just, Khan is not a democrat, he just wants to run things, okay. I've even got his, and, and Khan actually is, I have a character who's forever reminding Khan that, you know, you really need to actually concern yourself with economic development and making the trains run on time, and Khan gets sucked into these his sort of grand military campaigns to conquer the world, and kind of lets things go to hell in India. Nicely, of course, things were going to hell in India during the 90s in large sections of it, so this has had the ring of plausibility. Uh, a lot of the riots and things I sort of described were sort of roughly what were happening at that time. You know, you had unrest in, in northern India, and you had 
uh, economic problems and displacement and uh, case warfare and affirmative action issues going on. I know way more about Indian history than I ever needed to know. All because of that one damn sentence in Space Seed. I believe he's from northern India, Captain. They were a brave and courageous people. Okay, right, great. So, now, now I have six books on India you know, on my shelf and I can tell you about the presidential campaign of 1992. That's one of the things I think that works so well is to tie the real history with the uh, with the uh, unreal history of uh, Star Trek. Television, the scene we lost. Okay. The, oh yeah, mention the scene you lost. The, the sad, under was the weirdness of writing the book after 9/11, and there was some uh, suddenly a charismatic third world dictator trying to destroy the world was not nearly as much fun. And in fact, no, there was a scene where in fact Khan bombs the World Trade Center. That scene is gone. Uh, of course, it's gone. But yeah, that was the scene that didn't got killed out of the book. For the record, it was replaced by the IRA bombing in in, in London. Okay, uh, is the replacement for the World Trade Center bombing scene that got killed. I also moved an attack on the United Nations. It was originally going to be in Manhattan, and on the assumption that terrorist attacks in Manhattan were just not nearly as fun as they used to be, I moved it to the UN capital in Geneva, just on the assumption that New York had suffered enough, more or less. But that was the other weird issue of trying to tie in real history, but there's a point at which I actually stop and crosses over the realm of bad taste, and the World Trade Center was it. Uh, To go along with that, uh, you dedicate the book to the people of New York, which I thought was a nice touch. It was less occasionally weird writing a book about an international super-terrorist after 9-11, okay, but I just had to occasionally know, no, this is this is fun, this is comic book, this is this, this is a James Bond movie, this is not reality. Khan is a genetically engineered super... I did have a moment of panic, John can tell you this, I actually called up John in a panic after 9-11, and where I suddenly wanted to, like, eject anything they had... You know, how about genetically engineered giants, you know, monster spiders? Just because that was the most outrageous comic thing that I couldn't imagine actually happening in real life, and John told me to calm down, Greg, you can still have an evil supervillain. You know, you don't have to change Khan's genetically engineered supermen into giant super killer spiders just because I wanted to. The first book has an audio book that is narrated by Anthony Stewart Head, and it's available. And yes, the series, including a third book that we touched on briefly, is available on Kindle. And you can catch this episode and more commercial-free at Sci-Fi Talk Plus. Click on the link in the show notes, and this is for a free lifetime subscription offer. Yes, it's free without any obligation to you. Once you sign up, you're in for good as long as you want. And now to close us off, here is an audio clip from the reading of the first eugenics books by my AI friends. Now, this is something I did on my own, and I certainly don't want to infringe on anyone's copyright. That's why I kept it very short. Here it is. For Trek Tuesday, this is Tony Tolado. Chapter 1, East Berlin, German Democratic Republic, March 14, 1974, Roberta Lincoln paced nervously outside the Russian embassy, hugging herself against the chill of the cold night air. The monumental stone edifice, built in a stolid, neoclassical style, loomed behind the young blonde woman, silent and dark. Roberta peered at her wristwatch, It was ten past two in the morning, only ninety seconds later than the last time she'd checked her watch. What's keeping Seven and that darn cat? She wondered anxiously. They should be back by now. Restless and apprehensive, she strolled down the sidewalk, wincing at the sound of her own heels clicking against the pavement. The echo of her footsteps rang out far too loudly for Roberta's peace of mind. The last thing she wanted to do, 
was attract the attention of the local cops or, worse yet, one of the innumerable informants working for the Stasi, the dreaded East German secret police. Fortunately, under Den Linden, the wide city boulevard running north past the embassy seemed deserted at this ridiculously late hour. The only traffic she heard was an elevated train rattling by a few streets over. Roberta clung to the shadow cast by the huge building, keeping a safe distance from the street lamps at either end of the block, while also maintaining a careful lookout for any sign of trouble. Come on, come on. You'd think I'd be used to this sort of thing by now, she thought. After all, she'd been working with Gary Seven, alias Supervisor 194, for nearly six years now, ever since that unforgettable afternoon in 1968 when she'd shown up for what she'd thought was an ordinary secretarial job, only to find herself caught up in a bizarre happening involving nuclear missiles, talking computers, and a starship from the future.